Hi, it's Luba and Roma, and you're listening to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast. In this podcast, we talk to scholars and experts about their work and new publications to make the Arctic easy and accessible to everybody. So tune in and join our in-depth conversations that take you beyond the headlines and right into the latest ideas, challenges and the nitty-gritty of Arctic research. Hi everybody and welcome to this week's episode of the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast. This week, Luba and I talk to Andreas Husthagen about Arctic conflict, cooperation and geopolitics. Besides being a well-known figure and senior fellow here at the Arctic Institute, Andreas is also a senior research fellow at FNI, the Free Governance Institute in Oslo, a senior fellow at the Howard North Centre at Norway University in Wurde, and an associate professor at Björknes University College in Oslo. He's previously worked for the Norwegian Institute for Defence Studies in Oslo and the North Norway European Office in Brussels. Andreas holds a PhD in international relations from the University of British Columbia in Canada on ocean politics and disputes. And without further ado, here is our conversation with Andreas Hushagen. Hope you enjoy. Thank you, Romain. That was a long uh, introduction. I'm sorry you had to read all of that. It's 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 okay. How are you doing? What where are you right now? I am in Oslo. I'm in the, the spare bedroom of uh, my apartment, um, trying to avoid getting too warm because of the summer sun is finally out. Um, so yeah, I've been in Oslo now since February, I guess, like most of us, having stayed at home during the corona crisis. Right. And um, and uh, in this time of where, where people are perhaps all confined at home, as you say, um, could you perhaps give us... Um, a glimpse of your life uh, and describe the room you're in or, or the view from your window, if there's a window in the room? <laughs> yes, I mean, right now I had to put the shades down because, as I said, I mean, it's it's finally sunny in, in Oslo and it's getting warm and nice. Um, the room is tiny. It's full of books, all the books that I um, haven't read yet but probably should read at some point that I can't place anywhere else in the house. So this is what my guests, when they come to stay with me, have to, to look at. Um, so, I mean, my life, um, I'm living um, smack downtown uh, Oslo in a... In a an apartment in an old building from 1895. Um, I'm about to get a cat, perhaps even two cats. Um, I guess that's a, a thing that is becoming more common in Corona times as well, uh, getting pets to alleviate some of the, the boredom. Um, but Norway right now is, is opening up again, so, so things are, are looking up in Norway. Uh, so my life right now is, is looking quite good, um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back into the normal routines of maybe also attending a couple of workshops and seminars and, and meeting people more face-to-face. It's really nice to hear that, actually, and the surroundings, is, you know, it sounds really cozy. And uh, like my, my congratulations with uh, getting some pets, you know. Sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, it might be a spur of the moment, and then uh, as soon as I have to start looking for uh, pet sitters, then uh, problems will emerge. But <laughs> for now, I'm excited at least. <laughs> Great. But could you maybe now uh, briefly tell us about yourself? 
um, like your academic background, where you started studying, what you do, how you became interested in your research topics. Yes, I mean, uh, so I am uh, 33 years old um, at the moment, um, and I'm from the north of Norway. So I'm from Boulder. Uh, if you haven't been, it's uh, perhaps not the most, the most beautiful town in the Arctic, but the scenery is amazing. Um, it's the second largest town in the Norwegian Arctic after Tromsø. Um, and growing up in, in North Norway, you don't really think about Arctic issues a lot. I mean, even when I was growing up uh, in the 90s, uh, early 2000, um, the kind of concept of the Arctic itself, or, or the high north, as we, we call it in, in Norwegian, Nordumrodna in, in, in Norwegian language, um, wasn't really on the agenda. But then as I, I left town uh, when I was uh, 19 after high school and went to study elsewhere in, in Norway, um, I came to the realization that kind of one of my, I guess, comparative advantages when, when looking at international politics, which is what I ended up studying, um, was kind of the Arctic, uh, because I was from the Arctic or because I, I had a connection there. Um, and that took me kind of into the, the whole Arctic world. I mean, the reason why I'm on this, this podcast at the moment. Um, I went off to, to further study a master's degree in, in London at LSE. Um, and there everyone, you know, all the, the students that were uh, probably a little smarter and, and older than me, were looking at uh, topics for their thesis, as you as you stress with, and um, and I was encouraged by my supervisor to write about the Arctic, and I ended up writing about the EU's Arctic policy because I was interested in in working in Brussels, working with the European Union. So I guess coming all the way from from Buda and North Norway, um, my goal was to, or my plan, my hope was to to end up working on Arctic issues um, in in Brussels. Uh, so I wrote a, a master thesis about that, and that. I guess that got me a job in what was got me a job in in Brussels uh, at the North Norway European office, which is a, a government office uh, because, as you know, Norway is not a part of the EU, but it still needs to to um, maintain a close relationship with with Brussels and the European Union um, because of its EA agreement. So at that office, I worked for four years, actually, on, on Arctic issues, trying to, um, if not convince, but at least convey information about the Norwegian Arctic or Norwegian Arctic challenges to Brussels, to Europe at large. And we organized seminars, we wrote uh, opinion pieces, we wrote uh, policy documents uh, to the, the Commission on the External Action Service on, on Arctic issues. Um, so... That kind of really what was propelled me into to you know, the Arctic policy debate, and after doing that for for a for a time, I, I also I had the fortune of venturing to to Washington D.C. to be a summer intern of all things uh, in in 2011 with uh, Heather Conley at CSIS uh, doing Arctic uh, research. Um, later on, I went to Toronto to uh, as a kind of research fellow for a couple of months, again working on Arctic security issues. So that all led to, I guess, a personal interest in in academia, moving away from the the policy world and more into academia, but still trying to retain kind of relevance for the policy world. And uh, and that's where I am today. So I, I guess I made the switch uh, from Brussels to to research. Um, to the Norwegian Institute for Defense Studies, a, a research uh, 
part of the of the Norwegian Armed Forces uh, in 2014, and then later on went off to do a PhD uh, in Canada. And now I'm at the Fritjof Nansen Institute, a private research institute doing Arctic uh, studies, amongst other things. So that was a long introduction to my to my background and kind of how I ended up into Arctic affairs. That's, that sounds very impressive. And <clears throat> something I've, I've got to, to learn about you is that you have this ability of churning out or publishing a lot of papers and reports, uh, which actually have, uh, some, some form of impact in, in policymaker circles. But you've also recently published a book about, uh, Coast Guards and ocean politics in the Arctic with Palgrave Macmillan earlier this year. We'll put a link of the book in the show notes for listeners who are interested in, in buying it or, or reading it. How do you think, and perhaps this is linking to more specific issues, but how do you think Coast Guards play an important role for cooperation at sea, especially in the Arctic? Thanks for uh, highlighting my book. I mean, it's a, it's a short book um, that kind of uh, summarizes a lot of the, the work that I've done over the last years before I, I started on the PhD project. Um, so it it looks at different angles of Coast Guards. And, and I mean, to your question, um, <laughs> Coast Guards in the Arctic are, are really not one thing. Um, and the reason why I, I started looking at it in the first place was because Coast Guards are, in many ways, the Arctic state's foremost tool to deal with the changes that are occurring in the Arctic, especially at sea, naturally. Um, whether it's, you know, increased fisheries or uh, the need for uh, oil spill protection or, or oil spill response, um, or whether it's, it's more defense-related tasks, just being able to, to be present, to, to uphold serenity in, in kind of icy or less icy uh, waters in, in the Arctic. Um, so that was kind of the initial reason for why I got into to the Coast Guard study, um, and also because Norway has, a, a, I guess, a particular relationship with Russia, also when it comes to, to Coast Guard affairs, because Norway has to, to collaborate with, with Russia in many domains, and the Coast Guard collaboration is, is one of the most prominent ones that also has a military component. Um, so, you know, the Coast Guards across the Arctic uh, deal with these challenges in, in rather different ways. Um, not to go into too much detail, but... It, but it, there's a clear dividing line between North America, the North American Arctic, and the European, say, Russian Arctic. Um, because here where I'm sitting right now, or I'm not sitting in the Arctic, but I'm, I'm close to the Norwegian Arctic, um, we have no ice uh, in, in um, the ocean, even during wintertime. Uh, so the Coast Guard uh, resources are, in, in many ways, they have to be less uh, tailored for ice conditions, less focused on ice-breaking capacity. But um, at the same time, you need perhaps even uh, um, a stronger presence or, or any more resources and capabilities than, for example, in the Canadian Arctic or American Arctic during wintertime where um, there's very little activity because of, of the ice. But then when something is happening or a cruise ship goes aground in, at summertime even, um, you really need ice-breaking capacity and you really need uh, kind of expensive capabilities. I mean, just today... Um, or yesterday, uh, Trump administration had um, a note coming out concerning the new polar security uh, cutters from the for the Coast Guard, just highlighting kind of the U.S.'s focus on providing the U.S. Coast Guard with more capabilities in the Arctic. So, I mean, the Coast Guard is an interesting 
institution to examine when you look at Arctic politics more generally. Um, and then bit of the component of, of your question as well concerning cooperation, because it's really the buzzword, right, in, in Arctic studies over the last 15 years has been, you know, how do we cooperate to deal with, you know, whether it's oil and gas uh, uh, exploration or it's security issues or it's indigenous rights. How do we kind of increase cooperation in an Arctic sphere uh, between the Arctic countries? Um, and I try to examine the notion of, of cooperation between Coast Guards. You know, can you actually cooperate? Um, the question is to an extent. Because naturally, what Coast Guards do, um, kind of the practical day-to-day uh, dealings or workings of, of the Arctic states at sea, um, and when you're not located close to each other, like, for example, Norway and, and Canada, that are so far apart in different parts of the Arctic, there's no real scope for collaboration. Yes, perhaps a bit, you know, informal sharing of, of information, best practices, you know, tabletop exercises, those things. But day-to-day, hands-on cooperation is, is rather limited. So Coast Guard cooperation, beyond, you know, what I just mentioned on a kind of a overarching level, really takes place at a bilateral level or trilateral, say, the US, Canada, and, and the Danish Navy uh, that serves kind of as the Coast Guard uh, around Greenland, or uh, Norway and Russia, or Russia and the US, if that makes sense. Yes, indeed, like Coast Guards is a very significant part within the Arctic cooperation and security politics, you're right. And you know, it links directly to the notion of Arctic geopolitics, with uh, which you've been working a lot on, too. And, you know, to me, there is something unsettling about this uh, very concept. You know, historically, the Arctic emerges as a socially constructed space, like imagined space, which doesn't really evoke any sense of belonging on a local level, as you said uh, in your particular case in, with Buda, for example, you know. Or some northernmost regions in Sweden where nobody talks about the living in the Arctic, you know. Uh, and also geopolitics in its turn uh, is a notion which in the Arctic case implies highly contradictory dynamics, you know, as a place of conflict and cooperation at the same time. And I've been wondering, so how real, you know, how material do you think is this Arctic geopolitics uh, then? And how do we go about this controversial duality of cooperation and conflict paradigm? Maybe also uh, with some case examples, you know, from Coast Guard research. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the difficult <laughs> questions that you're asking. Um, how real is, is Arctic uh, or our Arctic geopolitics? Um, I mean, the, the reason, as, as you allude to as well, why I, I started studying Coast Guards was to examine this notion of conflict in, in the North. But instead of, of saying, you know, the Arctic is prone to conflict or, you know, there would be no conflict in the North, then instead looking at kind of some of these, these institutions or actors that are actually um, upholding state interests on a day-to-day -day basis, which the Coast Guard is doing. Um, so the, the Coast Guard is in many ways um, an ultimate example of how both dynamics are playing out at the same time in the Arctic on a regional level. So um, on the one hand, as, as I mentioned earlier, Norway and Russia collaborates on a Coast Guard level, not on a day-to-day -day level, but but at least you know on almost a weekly or at least monthly um, level, sharing of, of some information, sharing of 
of information concerning fisheries in particular. Um, sometimes even even having exercises together, although there were more of them before 2014. Um, so you see that cooperation happening despite overarching statements um, concerning, you know, East-West, uh, Russia, NATO, Norway, Russia relations. Uh, but at the same time, the Coast Guard in both countries are part of the, of the armed forces, or in Norway, the, the Navy, and in, in Russia, part of the, the Border Guard. And the Coast Guards, in that sense, also have a security component. They're armed, and, you know, worst come to worst, uh, it, they will inherently be part of of tensions or or a conflict outright conflict uh, between between uh, the countries uh, and they are more or less uh, sent up into the arctic waters from both russian and norwegian case to project serenity to to kind of show that these countries are able to be present in their arctic maritime domain which is also has a security and defense component uh, to show that we will not be deterred or we will not be threatened. So so you see a duality with the Coast Guards. But then to, to zoom out a bit and look at kind of Arctic geopolitics more widely, um, I mean, I don't think that the Arctic will be a, um, an arena for, call it, immediate conflict or immediate struggles anytime soon. Uh, I think... We've seen that over the last 15, 20 years, you know, studies, statements um, showing that the Arctic states actually have a mutual interest in in preserving some stability in the north, Um, whether it's the US or Norway or Russia or Canada or Denmark or Finland or Iceland or or Sweden. Um, But at the same time, what we've been seeing more of recently it's kind of this geostrategic, if that word even even means anything, but but this overarching um, utilization of the Arctic as an arena for you know, at least uh, aggressive statements and maybe some actual power projection or power display uh, from Russia, but also from from the U.S. Increasingly, um, so we we've seen. I mean, Russia continuously of the last 10, 15 years have invested in the Arctic, in Arctic military capabilities. Some of this is intended for the Arctic itself, for the Northern Sea Route to be able to be present as you know, ice is melting, as economic activity increases. Some of this has very little to do with the Arctic. It has to do with the Northern Fleet and, and Russia's kind of strategic positioning globally, or at least on the Northern Hemisphere with its nuclear submarines, etc., um, in the northwestern part of Russia. So Russia has kind of been doing this for the last decade or more. But then what we've seen with the Trump administration over the last at least year, if not year and a half, is kind of a realization that the Arctic is important, not only in terms of Alaska for the US, but also for the larger uh, global political game. Um, and, and here you have, you know, you have provocative statements from, from the Trump administration, and you also have uh, actions like the U.S.'s Sixth Fleet or some vessels from the Sixth Fleet with the Royal Navy sailing in the Barents Sea for so-called maritime security operations far away from the U.S. part of the Arctic, very close to the Norwegian and Russian part of the Arctic to highlight U.S. and U.K. capabilities in that strategic space. Um, and in general, you see more and more U.S. engagement in the Northeast Atlantic, the Barents Sea, kind of the, the part of, of the Arctic that has, say, the, le- the, the highest 
if not conflict potential, then at least the, the highest tension in terms of, of this is where the Northern Fleet is located, where, where Russia is investing. This is where Norway is located with, with its uh, armed forces and uh, thereby also, also NATO. Point just being that you've seen this increased attention given to the Arctic from the Trump administration that also concerns China. But China is not really active in, in the Arctic, at least not militarily. Um, so here you really kind of has a good example of the, the rhetoric or the discourse concerning the Arctic. Statements from the Trump administration saying that uh, China is not a near Arctic state, such a, a thing doesn't exist, um, and that China risks creating, or China's engagement in the Arctic risks creating a new South China Sea, um, which is, I mean, not perhaps not very accurate, but it highlights, again, this this geostrategic competition between the US and China that now also has an Arctic component. So I don't think there's, again, any chance of immediate conflict in the Arctic, but I do think that you're seeing, if geopolitics, uh, in your your definition, Lobo, is kind of the the, the potential or the, the immediate political struggles between countries over a geographic space, then I do think we've seen over the last couple of years that this has become um, more um, heightened or or increased in the Arctic. Thank you so much. Uh, That was a really, really uh, interesting um, comment, you know, on that. But you've been talking a lot about the state, you know, and the state perspective and talking about... um, States as the the agents, you know, behind the whole cooperation. But how powerful are the states actually? You know, are they more powerful than the regional actors? More significant in that case when we talk about Arctic geopolitics? What do you think? <laughs> I mean, as you you say, I mean, it depends on on what topic you're talking about, um, and I think it depends also on which part of the Arctic you're looking at. But if you're if you're looking at if you say that geopolitics inherently is something that um, goes on between states, it's uh, uh, international politics um, concerning the Arctic between states. Then, then naturally, states are the, the primary actors. Um, you know whether you invest in in military capabilities in the Arctic or not. Um, again, referring to the the Trump. Um, a document released yesterday concerning new new cutters to the the U.S. Coast Guard. These are state actions that have a consequence for the relationships, bilateral or multilateral, in the Arctic. So there, they definitely are the the primary actors. But you could, of course, argue that that I mean, geopolitics comprises of of much more than just state actions and just much more than just security. Um, that you know, economic. Uh, relations, trade, cross-border relations um, also play into this and in, in some ways influence kind of geopolitical notions, um, at least might also change the way states themselves behave. I mean, Norway loves to talk about the collaboration with Russia in the Barents region um, concerning uh, cultural, concerning education or, or economic cooperation. Um, and, and that, again, might have a say, calming effect or might have a conciliatory effect between these two countries bilaterally, also in the security domain or also kind of in a a wider sense of geopolitics. Uh, And there, naturally, if you look at regional relations between Norway and Russia, 
um, the town of, of Kirkenes uh, plays uh, an important role, or the, the municipality of Sydvaranger, which Kirkenes is, is in. Um, the county of Troms and Finnmark, or Norland, the two Arctic counties in Norway, hugely important in that sense. Um, what takes place on, on Svalbard, in kind of the, the Svalbard um, local, local uh, domain, uh, where I mean Russia, of course, uh, is is quite present on, in Bardensburg. Uh, interactions there naturally might influence bilateral relations between the two countries. Maybe also influence NATO uh, Russia relations. Um, so it depends a bit on on, on your perspective. If you if you see it as a bottom up or um, you know that that states are just reacting to to other states' actions, um, but I, I I like your point that you know you have to widen a bit the so-called geopolitical scope as well in the Arctic. And in the, in that sense, do you have ideas how we can go beyond the the purely state-centric view? I think you hinted to local cooperation, but is there any ideas to go beyond this state centrism, if you will? I mean. We could argue if you need to, but I mean, I, I inherently, I the research that I've done and and my focus is on the state, so so perhaps I'm a bit biased. I don't think you're going to be able to disband um, state the state as as kind of the primary actor in Arctic security relations um, anytime soon. Um, I don't think that's possible. But I, I I think kind of going to your question that. If you see this as not necessarily either or, but you see it as as the state um, or what influences state policies more than just you know the state is not just a, a black box. The state comprises of many different different interests and it can be influenced in many different ways. Um, then I think having a wider uh, debate on Arctic security relations, on kind of how to decrease a bit of the, the tension that we've seen uh, in the Arctic uh, over the last couple of years, tension then in terms of, of exercises, real exercises taking place, but also statements, you know, rhetoric coming from the various Arctic countries, Russia, uh, Norway, the US included. Um, and how do we kind of diffuse some of that tension? How can we perhaps create a, a code of conduct or you know, uh, better rules of, of how to, to go about doing things that has a security component uh, in the Arctic. And there, I think, having a, a wider debate on these issues, including, I mean, speaking <laughs> for, for myself, but, but including academics, including um, regional actors, and getting these actors in the same room as politicians, uh, members of parliament, uh, foreign ministers, etc., I think is crucial. I am quite fed up, to be honest, to with all these high-level Arctic meetings between foreign ministers or, or you know, a couple of of ministers or or for that matter, state leaders coming together and and you know making broad statements about the Arctic, but then you don't really engage in a wider Arctic debate, kind of from a from a minister or or government point of view. Um, I think. You need to have. I mean, the Arctic environment is small. The actors who set the agenda are sm- are, are few and far between. Uh, even even researchers or, or companies have quite a large effect on the way we talk about the Arctic, uh, and therefore having a broad debate conferences, if you may. I mean, there's a lot of Arctic conferences already, but but perhaps uh, focusing them a bit more. Um, and you know, states themselves, their foreign ministers, etc., going out and 
requesting or, or wanting or opening up for more dialogue on how to kind of reduce tension, how to reduce the conflict potential, I think is, is uh, worthwhile in, in kind of the Arctic environment that we have uh, right now. And also perhaps switching gear a little here, but we can see from your research, to some extent, you explore these ideas of the Arctic as an arena for political competition and rivalry, and you contrast them with the view of the Arctic as a region of harmony and shared interests, and which I, th I think it's uh, particularly quite interesting. But you also worked on the notion of conflict between states and the maritime space. And if I can narrow this even a bit further, what I see is that you, you've worked on the institutionalization of the expansion of territory into the maritime space and the interplay between the sovereign rights to resources in the water column on seabed management of these resources, etc., broader conflict cooperation paradigm. Could you perhaps expand a little bit more on this? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's <laughs> expand a bit more. It's a complex uh, topic. Um, my argument uh, to summarize it in one sentence, is just that maritime space is becoming more important for states around the world. Maybe not a revolutionary argument, um, but but still, I think if you accept this premise, um, and this, this is not only in the Arctic, this goes for states in the Caribbean or uh, in the Pacific as well. I mean, meaning that uh, the resources at in the water column, so the resources at sea, fisheries, um, etc., or the resources at the seabed, uh, crab or, or oil and gas, minerals, um, are becoming more important for states, uh, and also kind of linked to to an awareness of climate change, an awareness of of the need to preserve or protect the ocean, uh, is is thrown into this mix, making maritime space more important for states. Um, the consequence of this is that states might be willing to, to go further to protect their rights at sea. Um, I mean, the, the rights that states have at sea today aren't that old. I mean, they developed after the Second World War, as you know, with the Law of the Sea, uh, the UNCLOS uh, Convention and, and, and these, these developments. Um, but I really think that if you if you look across the world, if you look across South China Sea, East China Sea, uh, the Caribbean, as I mentioned, or, or the Arctic, states care a lot and maybe even more now about where to delineate rights, how to manage transboundary fish stocks, etc. So the, the the point being that with this new interest or increased interest in what happens at sea, the conflict potential also rises. Not meaning that you will have outright conflict immediately, but that states are willing to go or actors are willing to go a bit further to protect what they deem as theirs. I mean, even in the Brexit campaign, we saw that fisheries played a, a large part of the, the political rhetoric, take back our waters, even though the, the fishery sector or industry in, in the UK is, is tiny compared to the rest of the economy. Um, in, in the case of, of Norway and the EU, uh, we've seen that snow crab suddenly had become an issue that, that really wasn't on the agenda before. And they still haven't, these two actors haven't managed to, to solve this. We see that the, the fishery protection zone around Svalbard um, is, is increasingly on the agenda in the Norway-Russia bilateral relations concerning also you know, who has what rights to do what at sea, who who has rights to, to potential resources in that domain. Um, 
And then you have other issues in the Arctic, whether it's the Northwest Passage, uh, you know, that time and time again uh, arises on the agenda, perhaps not the, the biggest conflict potential there, but still it's, it's an issue concerning, you know, who has what rights in the maritime domain, uh, continental shelf um, extensions, you know, claims that are that have been submitted by, by Denmark, uh, Russia and, and Canada might not lead to outright conflict, um, but, but still a diplomatic dispute probably over who um, has what rights and, and where do you delineate and who owns the, the North Pole, to put it bluntly. Um, point just being that, that there are areas in the Arctic around the world when you look at the maritime domain where conflict or at least, you know, there's a dispute potential. Um, but that's not the same as, as saying that you will have outright conflict uh, in the Arctic, that you will have war uh, in the Arctic between the countries. And, and as you also referred to, Romain, the, the kind of resource argument that states will claim territory or, or resources doesn't really make sense in the Arctic. But I think we as, as scientists or academics have a continuous job to, to try to describe current trends and, and um, explain what's happening in a, in, in a simple manner to media, because I don't think media or politicians, for that matter, will stop caring about the Arctic. It's, it's a fascinating part of the world. Um, just over the last decade, we've seen an explosion you know, in the interest of, of Arctic studies, studies of Arctic geopolitics, if you may. And it's a continuous job to keep Kind of unpacking the complexities of, of what is happening in the Arctic and the nuances of it. And I really don't believe in these one-liners. You know, the Arctic is, everything is fine. The Arctic is just a zone of cooperation or the Arctic is kind of the, the arena for future or immediate conflict or geopolitics. There's so much nuance in, in the Arctic and between the different Arctic regions and, and countries that we need to keep researching it. Thanks. And and maybe to go a bit further on this, if we if we take everything you've just talked about, this very nuanced view, and also your your research as a whole, how do you think we can connect them to what's happening in other maritime spaces elsewhere in the world, not only in the Arctic? Can Arctic management of maritime spaces serve as an example or role model for the rest of the world? And are there some sort if any lessons that can be learned from Arctic governance, perhaps governance is not the right term, but the Arctic way of managing the cooperation conflict dynamics? That's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, in some ways, that's the way Arctic studies are evolving is, is from you know trying to describe what's happening in the Arctic to trying to to see what can Arctic uh, experiences or, or cases or lessons, as you call them, um, hold of relevance for the rest of the world. But then, of course, I mean, there's something to be said for you know imposing um, regional lessons uh, in one part of the world onto the other that are, of course, uh, rather complex and have different issues. Um, but yes, I mean, naturally, there, there are some things in the Arctic that, that functions rather well. Uh, you mentioned transboundary resources. I think fishery, fishery management in the Arctic has more or less uh, functioned um, satisfactorily, uh, perhaps not in just south of the Arctic Circle with the macro dispute between Norway, the EU and Iceland and Faroe Islands. But, but, but more generally, we, we, the way that the Arctic states have 
managed to deal with kind of large fish stocks that are also now increasingly changing their their um, their patterns um, moving further north. Uh, you see the Russia Norway collaboration on fisheries that have you know, lasted for decades. You see the new agreement that was recently signed only a few years ago on on the moratorium uh, or preventing um, unregulated and illegal fisheries in uh, the Arctic Ocean itself. Uh, can you see these proactive measures taken um, to deal with issues before they they really arise? Um, and to try to base it on, on, on science. And I mean, if that's a, that a lesson that might be relevant in other parts of the world, by all means. Um, the same could be said for, for actually delineating maritime space. Uh, if you look around the Arctic, uh, almost all maritime boundaries have been agreed on. Uh, the only maritime boundary that is, is not, uh, have not reached a, uh, even a tentative agreement is the, the Beaufort Sea uh, boundary between uh, Canada and and the US. Um, and if you compare that to the rest of the world, where actually across the world, more or less half of all maritime boundaries are still in dispute, um, maybe there's lessons there as well that um, maritime boundaries might not be what states um, immediately uh, are concerned with uh, settling or agreeing, you know, in the Mediterranean or in the in the, the South Pacific or, or Caribbean. Um, but there might be value to agreeing on the boundary before tension arises over, you know, who has the rights to to what resources, or before, you know, suddenly fish stocks or, or crab or or other kind of uh, you know things change. That again heightens the, the relevance of that same boundary. So those lessons, by all means. Um, beyond that, I think it. I mean, that's the, the the question of rat right now. Like, what? How can the Arctic serve as, you know? as a relevant example for other parts of the world or how can other parts of the world um, you know have relevant lessons for for how to deal with the arctic which is i mean a, a region that is is rapidly changing you know following up on that and speaking about the growing role and place of the ocean you know in the maritime space in driving and altering the relationships between different actors you know including states your personal like academic perspective and Taking this relationship through a global lens, you know, with the perspective, do you actually think that there is an opportunity for an alternative approach to these relationships? Like taking, uh, for example, the uh, case of Bolivia, which implemented recently the rights of the Mother Earth, you know, on a state level. Or like talking about the uh, the rights of the ocean or the rights of the fish, uh, so to say, you know, instead of the rights of states uh, to uh, or like corporations to access uh, certain resources. Do you think it's actually something that is possible in the Arctic? <laughs> That's a <laughs> provocative question. I mean, uh, you're obviously a much more, uh, of a, I guess, a critical uh, thinker than I am. Um, I tend to operate within the, the realms of the current ways of thinking. Uh, but but I, I like uh, your point or your question because it, it does raise this notion of, of, you know, who has what rights beyond states. Um, and, I mean, if we just take an historic uh, view or approach to it, uh, when the law of the sea was being developed, uh, it wasn't a given that all coastal states would, so to say, acquire the rights that they have today when it comes to, to you know, territorial sea is one thing, but also the exclusive economic zone and 
um, and the rights, sovereign rights that states have acquired there and on the seabed. Um, so there were there was an alternative view that you know the the ocean should be governed for for mankind or you know a regional approach that that you know uh, when you have uh, countries around an ocean uh, or a sea together they should jointly manage that domain um i mean these ideas didn't didn't win out in the end perhaps because the states saw it as more um beneficiary to to uh, acquire um sovereign rights um I mean, in an Arctic approach, you could argue that that kind of seeing the whole Arctic Ocean as as a shared joint space um, might solve some problems in the future. I think maybe the the agreement on on fisheries or preventing illegal uh, fisheries in in the Arctic Ocean is 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 one kind of way of of thinking along these lines. But again, states are, as you say, the the primary focus. Um, you have maybe more so in the North American Arctic context than in the European or Russian, but you have also the, the notions of indigenous rights um, and then how indigenous groups have, have utilized the ice, the ice that is now melting, um, and the waterways in the Arctic, and how you know, that is not necessarily in contrast to state rights, but it adds a layer to it or, or maybe a dimension to it. Um, and I think, I mean, going into kind of the, the realm of, of, of this critical uh, geography and and there are ways that we are describing what is happening uh, in the Arctic at sea that kind of um, clashes with with ideas of exploitation um, or to to put it differently there's different ways of conceiving uh, the ocean as as a space of value to humanity and society. Uh, which is also what your question is getting at, um, in the sense that um, environmental concerns, um, whether it's it's for the individual or or for the ocean as as its own object, um, you know, have arisen and, and might even, in some instances, trump um, the kind of exploitative resource concerns of states or companies, um, and then these different notions are maybe increasingly also emerging and then clashing. I mean, uh, Phil Steinberg wrote about this two decades ago, and I don't think it's it's even less today uh, in the Arctic. Um, but, I mean, we'll see. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a slow-moving but, but low, long process. And uh, to, to bounce back on that, it's also, I think it also depends on what kind of Arctic we see. Uh, and, I mean, we've, we've talked about uh, the Arctic is a socially constructed place for cooperation. But also, if we look at the enclose, the area and its resources are already common heritage of mankind in, in part 11. So I think, I think it's, as you say, it all depends about what view we have of the Arctic as a whole and, and sustainability in the Arctic. I mean, again, uh, using the right buzzwords, but, um, how we make the Arctic as a place where people can, can live in. If if I can conclude with that, I mean I, I don't <laughs> disagree at all with with that. Um, I, I mean I guess going back to to the earlier discussion on, on states, though I st- I still think it's important to kind of also deal with the realities of what's happening in the Arctic region, and and uh, you know you could say for good or bad, states are the primary actors, but but they are also dealing with some of these issues um, as they are arising in terms of you know fisheries or or ocean management to the whole discussion we have on the BBNJ negotiations on or the biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction um, negotiations under the UN or you know marine protected area debates that we have not only in the Arctic but also increasingly in the Antarctic 
um, kind of these topics will not become less relevant in, in years to come. Thank you so, so, so much for your time, Andreas. Yeah, thank, thank you so you. much. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Andreas Hushagen. If you've made it that far into the podcast, it means that you are really into Arctic research and what's happening in the region. If you're looking for more Arctic content and want to keep up to date with what's happening in the region, you can always subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Arctic This Week, or download our news app. It's totally free and you get a weekly rundown of the latest news and analyses in Arctic security, environment, politics and culture directly to your inbox or smartphone at the beginning of each week. We've shared over 40,000 stories with readers in 90 countries. Subscribe to the newsletter or download the app now to make it part of your weekly routine.